As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. I wanted to talk about debt right now with Dana Peterson. Chief Economist, the conference uh, board, the conference board hugely aware of the consumer and the business tone that's out there in America. Uh, along that line, and to take it from the academics, Dana, are we over-debted right now? Are we up to our eyeballs in credit debt? Absolutely. Uh, certainly when we look at the consumer, credit debt has, has risen to where we were pre-pandemic. Delinquencies are up. Um, when we look at the sovereign debt, in the U.S., it's extremely elevated. Interest rates are rising, and that's causing debt service to rise as well. And we're concerned about both the sovereign situation as well as consumers heading into a season when they're going to run out of excess savings and also may be laden with student debt loan repayments. Well, to that exact point, Dana, we've been talking a lot about the month of September. I am interested in October when those payments resume after years of being on pause due to the pandemic. What economic impact is that likely to have, given how this could be a very large factor in household budgets? Well, it's probably going to take several tenths off of GDP growth in October, and it's going to weigh on the outlook going forward, because certainly if people were using credit cards to finance their debt and they were also taking that reprieve from student loan payments, when all those things come due, they're not going to spend and they're probably going to start fearing for the economy in general, because their own personal finances will not be as robust as they were. Are we starting to see consumer behavior change already in anticipation of that? Dana, what what evidence might you be seeing of that? Well, not really. We think consumers are still looking at the fact that many of them are still working. Um, They're still spending on services, even though they're saying that the types of services they're going to spend on will be more towards needs rather than wants. But the point is that they still anticipate that they're going to be spending. And they're not really looking forward to the fact that, yes, they're going to have higher debts, their balance sheets are not going to be as healthy, and certainly interest rates are going to be very elevated in case they have any emergencies where they might need to finance something. So I think consumers are are not really focused that much on the future as much right. as they should be. And Dana, you're expert at this. The theme at Jackson Hole, and particularly our day with uh, Managing Director Gorgieva of the IMF and with Lagarde of the ECB, they both brought up fragmentation. How fragmented is America right now? How disaggregated are we in our economics? Well, I mean, you do have very different uh, responses to what's going on in the economy. Even when we look at our own consumer confidence measure, you get different readings by age and by income. And so we do think there is quite a bit of fragmentation in the economy right now. 
Well, the fragmentation is, that's there, I guess we see it in the jobs report on Friday. A lot of people are waiting for, I'll say, sub-100,000 non-farm payrolls. How disaggregated is that number? I mean, it's $150 million for conversation, but is part of that $150 million flat on their back and the other part confident? Well, I think it really depends on what industry you're in. Certainly the industries where you have to show up to work are still hiring, but the industries that were former pandemic darlings like tech and finance, uh, even transportation and warehousing, they're seeing job losses and weakness. And even with the big revisions that we saw in the payrolls data uh, dating back from March uh, to 12 months prior, we saw that, uh, that there were entire gains wiped out. And so if you're in those sectors, you're probably not as ebullient as if you are in, say, hotels or restaurants or, or even healthcare, where there's still quite a bit of hiring going on. And finally, Dana, can I ask you a- about the housing market and, and the mortgage rates that people are facing if they're trying to buy a home or contending with if they're thinking about selling the home that they're in, that they have a lower rate on? How How is that a factor in in the perception of the economic health of the country that consumers feel if they're looking at home affordability that is the worst it's been in decades, rents that also are incredibly high? Well, it's interesting. You actually see bifurcation in the housing market. Existing home sales are down in the dumps and and prices are falling year on year because mortgage rates are so high. Why would you move if you're going to have a higher mortgage rate than what you have now after you probably refinanced a couple of times during the pandemic? But then with new housing, we're starting to see a little bit of a pickup because you can't get an existing home. But all in all, affordability is certainly down because interest rates are so high. And also in certain markets, prices are still rising year on year because this is very much about location. Uh, Dana, thank you so much. Dana Peterson, the conference board uh, with us. Phil Orlando joins us now, chief equity strategist over at Federated Hermes. Phil, I'll ask the Evercore question again. Is the pullback more than a seasonal setback? So Julian's a very smart guy. Uh, We've been looking for, let's call it a 10% correction in stocks uh, over the course of the August, September, October period, which would be seasonal. Uh, The question is, what does valuation look like, uh, these big technology stocks versus the rest of the market? Uh, In the first, you know, seven months of the year, the tech stocks have dramatically outperformed the rest of the market. And we felt that there would be sort of a reversion of the mean during this, you know, third quarter period. Right. Uh, you know, 10, 12 percent is a reasonable place to start. And let's see what the valuation looks right. like once we get there. Phil, I'm coming into Labor Day. I'm at the kitchen counter at the second home and I'm trying to reallocate my portfolio. Am I reallocating with enthusiasm to equities looking out three years or can I not have a three year view? because of the jumble of the news flow right now. No, if you've got a three-year time horizon, Tom, we're extraordinarily bullish. Our our near-term call, somewhat tactical, is somewhat defensive. That we've got a 3% overweight to stocks overall. But our overweights are in domestic value, in small cap, and international. The one area that we've got sort of a negative bias on is, is these growth technology names, which we think got ahead of themselves. As we look out three years, uh, we will have seen peak inflation. We will have seen peak Fed. Valuation levels will be more reasonable. Maybe we get a a change in leadership in Washington with 
better fiscal policy approach, all of that suggests that stocks three years from now are going to be in much better shape. Okay, so, Phil, you suggest that we'll see the peak in inflation, we'll see the peak in Fed funds at some point between now and three years from now. Can you get more specific about where that is if we're talking about higher for longer? How much longer, realistically? So so uh, I, I think we're looking, Kaylee, at about a, a six to 12 month time frame. The inflation has clearly peaked in our mind last year. The question is the divergence between the decline in headline inflation versus core inflation. Core inflation is coming down at a much slower pace. The Federal Reserve, in our view, probably has one more quarter point hike up their sleeves, maybe that November 1st meeting, and then they go on pause. But pause is going to last a while. We don't expect them to come back in and start cutting rates until perhaps this time next year. Uh, valuation levels, you know, because of the tech stocks were extended, uh, those valuation levels are coming back. Uh, stocks are down about 6% over the course of the last month or so. Uh, and then, of course, we've got this big election coming up in, in November of next year. So it's going to take a year or so for all of these things to shake out. But again, using Tom's three-year time horizon, we're, we're pretty excited about what the longer-term picture looks like. How does the longer-term view on equities conflate with what you expect in the bond market? Because right now the bond market, frankly, looks quite confused. But I wonder how much the rate story is actually what is attributing to the stagnation in the equity market we have seen. No, a great question. And and the backup in rates that we've seen here from three and a quarter to four and a quarter in benchmark tens over the last, say, six months or so, I mean, that's exactly what our duration committee uh, chaired by R.J. Gallo was looking for. The The idea is that, that rates are going to peak here, you know, in this four and a quarter, four and a half percent neighborhood. And looking out over the course of the next six to 12 months, we're going to see rates rally back, you know, into that three, three and a quarter neighborhood. So, you know, it's been painful for bond investors over the last six months or so. We think looking out over the course of the next year with the potential for slower economic growth, bonds will rally. Phil Orlando, retail got absolutely slammed last week. Does that give you pause on a profitable Walmart trading at 20x times, you know, earnings? It, it, Tom, it certainly gives us pause because one of the things we track pretty closely is the performance of the consumer during April, back to school and Christmas. And, and back to school season, we're only two months in. We've got June and July data, but retail sales are only up about 2.4% year on year. A year ago, retail sales were up 9.8% over that period of time. We saw the same situation with April, the March and April Easter sales were only up 1.7% year on year. We think Christmas sales are gonna be, again, sort of that low single digit. So for a number of reasons, the consumer is slowing down. GDP is 70% generated by the consumer. So that's something we're watching pretty closely. So do you think there's some tension here between what we're pricing in the bond market, particularly the front end, which is higher for longer, and what's developing abroad, specifically in China? So China has been a disappointment, no question. Uh, we've got a longer term view on China that given the problems that they're having right now, it is inconceivable to us that we do not see aggressive fiscal and monetary policy in China looking out over the next six to 12 months to try to reverse those fortunes. So we like international in part because we're expecting the Chinese government uh, is, is going to step in here and, and try to turn things around and improve the economic fortunes of China over the next year. 
Not happened yet in a big way, that's for sure. Phil, thank you, sir. That's for sure. Phil Orlando of Federated Hermes. Range of efforts from Chinese policymakers over the weekend. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. end of the summer. We are all recalibrating. Children are being lectured on summer reading and getting ready for school. Part of that across this nation is to get the tone of America. No one does that better than Gallup, venerable Gallup, their editor-in-chief, Mohammed Yunus, has just been exquisite on the big picture of America. Mohammed, an open question. What is the mood of America as we enter September? Not good. Um, on the several fronts, not good. If you are a federal government official, um, no matter what institution you're leading right now, you're facing a record low in confidence. Um, and that even applies uh, to the Supreme Court and the military. Um, but politically speaking, uh, guys, what we see is really the Biden administration struggling to get Americans behind what they're doing with the economy. Big effort the past couple of weeks. You guys covered it. But right now, President Biden is has 60 plus percent of people who disapprove of the way he's handling this economy. Um, so as people go back to school and as um, confidence in higher institutions is also at a record low, uh, people have the economy on their mind this fall. Does President Trump own the Republican Party or is there a party out there of our collective memory? Um, right now, if you follow the numbers, he does. Nobody is uh, even close to giving him any kind of a challenge in terms of favorable ratings. Um, that being said, his favorable rating is not high. It's 41. Uh, it's the same as President Biden's. And again, we're going to see an election where Americans, for the most part, are choosing between options they're not thrilled about. Unless somebody new uh, and miraculous jumps in, in the ring and it doesn't look like that's going to happen right now. Mohammed, to return to the subject of President Biden and his approval ratings, and as you know, they remain low on the economy. You have a graphic in your polling that just shows that even over the course of the last year and change, as we have seen inflation continually going down, the line almost moves sideways. He's not getting any credit for things improving. Will the greater credit come potentially on the downside in the form of blame for any further deterioration we see from here? 
Yeah, I mean, look, presidents either do a great job taking credit for the economy or they do a horrible job and they get blamed for anything that's going wrong. I think right now the Biden folks are in that latter category. Um, in contrast, of course, President Trump was doing a pretty good job taking credit for a booming economy before COVID. Those dynamics are probably not going to change, Kaylee. I, I don't see President Biden suddenly convincing the public that he's doing great. His base is supporting him. Um, support among Democrats was a little bit lower. It's back up to about 81. So he's really got who he's got. Historically speaking, to really be an incumbent that has a chance, you got to hit the 50% plus mark. And the big debate in the polling world these days is, is that a dynamic of the past? And are we moving into a different era? Right now, neither Biden nor Trump are even close to 50. Okay, so on the subject of, of Trump, I was mentioning earlier, Mohammed, we have this hearing in the Washington case. There's a hearing in Georgia as well today when we're going to be talking about a trial that could fall in the middle of primary season. We understood from reporting over the weekend that all the fourth indictment of the president, his arrest and mugshot in Georgia seems to have accomplished for him, at least at this point, is raising a bunch of money. Seven million dollars, four point two, I believe, on Friday alone. Do you have any reason to expect that he will start to see a deterioration in his attractiveness to his base as these legal challenges just keep mounting? I don't. And here's why. We did a recent analysis looking at the past 20 years of the issues Democrats and Republicans have diverged the most on. The number one issue, Kaylee, has been the size of the federal government, a 50 point gap between Republicans and Democrats. And you'll notice that President Trump is framing his entire defense essentially based on an overreach of government that's stifling his right to free speech, his right to challenge the election, et cetera. The more that he does that, the more that he's driving right into the narrative that his base wants to hear most of all. Um, so before those reasons, I really don't see it harming him much. Mohammed, which state is your Gallup guide state towards November of next year? Is there one state where you wake up and say, pay attention to Ohio or pay attention to Georgia? I, I mean, which is a state that, that you study? There are none that we study, really, Tom. What we do is try to understand the national mood and the national average. Now, of course, swing states are key, but really every cycle in the last three to four cycles, there have been different key swing states. Um, it's really early, I think, right now, depending maybe when we have a one person running for the Republican Party, right. we can point to a state if that person's connected to it. But it's not just going to be a one state game this year. Finally, Mohammed, when I look at your breakdown of the different approval or situations and the approval for the president, I noticed that his highest approval rating is on the situation in Ukraine. As we had on the debate stage, candidates calling into question last week the idea that the U.S. should continue to provide funding, members of Congress also making a lot of noise about the U.S. not aiding Ukraine in the same way we have for the last 18 months. Where are the American people on this issue? The American people um, are mostly behind Ukraine, but Republicans are split on Ukraine. And this is a really uh, persistent split that's consistent now since the beginning of the war. You have half of Republicans that very much are of the opinion that we should not be doing so much. But there's another half of the Republicans, uh, around 45 percent, that really want to see Ukraine fight through and win back um, all yeah. the territory they've lost. Mohammed, 10 seconds. What's been the Taylor Swift impact across America? Is it permanent? <laughs> I th I'm from Los Angeles. I think so. I think the future of America has more to do with entertainment than anything right now. <laughs> there we go. Mohamed Yunus. Mohamed, thanks for that final point. Appreciate it. Anna Ashton joins us this morning.
Anna, what do you think of the Chinese coverage? It's a cottage industry right now for people like you. There's like five articles a day I feel like I have to read. What am I missing? What, what do you see in your China analysis that's not in the zeitgeist right now? Hmm. So, you know, I, I wish there were only five articles a day that I had to read. Because <laughs> um, it definitely has become something of a cottage industry. I think that uh, the interesting thing that's happening right now really is this detente that the Biden administration and um, Chinese leadership have been pursuing for the entirety of the summer. Uh, and I know that that's not new, and it is something that people have had every reason to see. But I think, you know, the fact that it's being carried out by the Biden administration at this time, when we're headed into a presidential election year, and um, I really had expected a couple of years ago that by now there would be nothing but um, competition to be the most hawkish on China. It's very interesting to see the Biden administration deciding that uh, stability is the course it wants to chart. Anna, this week, key for Secretary Raimondo, what would you expect from four days of meetings from the Commerce Secretary? I think that this is the most important visit we've had so far from a member of the administration uh, because she oversees export controls and export controls are um, the things among others, but, uh, but a mainstay of the um, tech policies that the United States has rolled out in recent years um, that China is most bothered by feels that this is an effort to contain their technological advancement and even um, likely to undermine their economic prosperity. So they're pretty upset about about the export controls and about things like um, the executive order on outbound investment that also constrains U.S. abilities to invest in certain sectors in China, including AI, quantum, and semiconductor chips. Um, and now they're going to speak with the woman who seeing all of that. She's already said on the ground that national security concerns are non-negotiable, but she's emphasized that that's just 1% of the U.S. economy. And she's really pushed for a more robust and more stable commercial relationship. And she's gotten some receptivity from her counterparts. Yeah, we, we've heard that they're going to be talking. There's going to be an export group meeting tomorrow on August 29th. To your point, Anna, we've heard from her and continuously from administration officials that this is about protecting national security interests. It is not about holding China back economically. But can you really have one without the other? Isn't protecting national security interests to at least a certain degree going to hit China economically by default? Yes, by default, it absolutely will, Kaylee. And, you know, the reality is that these export controls uh starting last October with the ones that uh, Jake Sullivan announced, um, they're really quite restrictive. They don't just prevent China from buying things that are um, state of the art. They prevent China from buying anything in the future that is smaller <laughs> than what these restrictions right. have set down um, and smaller being more state of the art. So they're kind of trying to hold China at a certain right. place in its technological development. And all of this is about fancy technology stuff. But the fact is, in my house still, like 80% of the garbage that comes in the door in cardboard boxes says made in China. Has there been any lessening of all the stuff we buy that's made in China that's not going to be in a balloon over Wyoming? 
This is an interesting question because of the recent numbers. So the um, the numbers for all of 2022 showed that uh, trade was at an all time high, over seven hundred yeah. billion dollars. But but recent numbers have indicated that exports from China into the United States specifically have dropped by 25% so far this year. Um, the biggest drop in a very long time. But what and, was that? I don't mean to interrupt, but this is important, Anna. What was the drop due to? Was it electric vehicles from China or was it, you know, the coasters? We just had to get coasters, John, for the deck. You know, the, the, the gin and tonic I'm, I'm was slipping off the coaster. <laughs> Where are we going Anna, with this? Anna, what caused that drop in Chinese exports to America? So there's there's lots of speculation about that, but I think that it really is likely that it is a sign of U.S. companies beginning to diversify their supply chains. Um, and so more of the inputs for the goods that they are bringing into the United States are made in places other than China. Um, that doesn't mean that they're leaving China. It just means that for the for the business that involves manufacturing to export to the United States, uh, more and more of them are doing that elsewhere. So, Anna, is it going through India, Vietnam? Where were you seeing that show up? A combination of those um, and and other places. But you know, the reality is that there are no markets that can just absorb all of the export or all of the manufacturing that is done in China for the U.S. market. Um, so, at a certain point, probably in the near future, these other markets are going to hit capacity. Um, and then it'll be much more difficult and more expensive for companies to figure out where to go. And out of interest, who do you think has got the best strategy in how to handle that, to move your manufacturing base out of China without isolating the Chinese consumer? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid naming any companies, sure. but I think, I think the strategies that are really focused on for, in China for China um, and ramping up the manufacturing and development that's going on for the Chinese market are good strategies. Uh, they don't they don't check every box uh, for the Chinese government or um, in terms of risk management, but they check the most boxes. What a change. Anna Ashton of Eurasia Group. Anna, thank you. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app. Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.